Blog Talk Radio. And hello, folks. Once again, it is Friday, and uh, once again, we go into the breach. Um, so tonight, you may have missed us last week. Uh, sorry we had to do that. Uh, we went ahead and um, rescheduled that show. We didn't cancel it on coding, but we rescheduled it. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, starting tonight, we have a two-week series that we're doing, well, actually a three-week series that we're doing on the U.S. Forest Service um, and a couple of the different branches inside the United States Forest Service. Um, and tonight, I think, is going to be interesting, and I think it's going to be eye-opening for a lot of people, um, especially a lot of us who live up in, like, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Montana, those states that are bordering um, Canada right now because we are getting, well, we have had all summer the effects of their wildfire smoke. Um, What do you think about that, Adrian? It just seems to me like it's been worse this year than it has before. Um, So tonight, uh, not only are we talking about this subject, but we are actually bringing on a special guest who uh, not only was a um, wildfire, wild uh, forest service wildland firefighter, uh, but he was also on a helitat crew, and he was also a park ranger. And once again, we're going to bring on Doc Z. Doc Z, how you doing tonight? Doing good. Uh, we were just talking about um, the smoke that we've been getting from uh, Canada's uh, wildfires and kind of how that's been um, affecting people with um, not only just normal people, but also people who have had who have uh, breathing problems, talking about how I think it's been the worst this year than it has been for a few years, as at least I can remember. Yeah, so we wanted to bring you on tonight, and we wanted to talk about, I thought this would be an interesting topic, is to talk about wildland firefighting. Uh, Not a lot of people know about it. Um, Some smaller departments might have a uh, wildland uh, side of things, Um, but for at least from what I've seen, uh, you only really hear it maybe once or twice a summer, um, so it, it, I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on and, and just uh, have you uh, inform the listeners and the viewers. Um, what exactly is the role of the wildland firefighters and the helitat crews within the U.S. Forest Service? Right.
and that's so so the chalice national forest is is southern central idaho So what what got you into uh, the U.S. Forest Service? Interesting. So once you join the fire service uh, or the forest service, um, is it kind of like the Navy where you can kind of say, hey, I'd like to do this or I'd like to work in this side of it, or do they just, you know, put you where they need you? Mm-hmm. So you you were mentioning, um, and I kind of wanted to segue into, I I know the difference, but talking about the different types of crews and the, and the different types of mobility that the Forest Service has. And you were mentioning um, either, you know, driving into a point and then walking in. Uh, now, that would, be, that would be like a type 2 hand crew, right? You, you kept mentioning a Pulaski there. Can you, and for the people who don't know what a Pulaski is, can you describe what it is? And so with that, uh, as as far as maintaining that tool, did you put an edge on that, or is that more of a grubbing edge? Mm-hmm. So it was more of more of something to get like or a rock or something out. Mm-hmm. Now, in in that portion of of um, Idaho, uh, was it very often that you saw fire dozers out there, or was that more of a uh, California thing? What was uh, accessibility? So so helitac crew is almost helitac crew is almost akin to a uh combat team 
flying in and, and doing a combat offload. Right. And so the picture that we're looking on the screen now, uh, most people will uh, right away identify that as, as the most, uh, when they think helicopter in the military, that's the number one helicopter that'll pop up. That is a UH-1 uh, Bell Iroquois. So that, um, so you did a you did a lot of flying in that. Was that the main airframe that you guys used? You mentioned uh, your your fire packs and everybody having you know a couple of days worth of food. Um, can you talk about what type of rations you would you would usually take in? Because I suppose I suppose it would be space saving. I've had some uh, uh, repop um, K rats that have been you know redone. And yeah, they're pretty good. I mean, they're basic, but they've got enough calories to get you through. Now, it's not like a 24-hour meal. It was just usually, you know, they came in a breakfast, supper, dinner. Yep. And um, so with those, um, I, I had that too, and those were good. But my question is, up until 19, I think it was like 19... 75, the military rations had cigarettes in them. So would you guys just, like, toss them out or barter with them or, right? <laughs> so they are. Um, so as far as uh, the the hell attack, did you have a primary job uh, while you were on uh, the crew? Okay. So they didn't they so they didn't have like aside from the Sawyer or like the crew boss, they really didn't have specific um spots in the crew. So 
that picture right there, that's got to be, to me, you know, like like they would say in a, in a Navy recruitment is, you know, join the Navy, see the world. Well, what I see right there is, you know, you can you can join the Forest Service and, and see a lot of country. Um, but then again, I mean, right there, it looks like they're not pressed uh, for any, you know, pumping in or, or going to going to take care of a fire. Were there times where you just got to take it in? Okay. Oh, well, I was just I was just talking about it looks like um, you know, like I was saying, join the Navy see the world. It looks like that would be a great job for somebody, you know, like in college. Exactly. You know, a, a great summer job for for a college student or somebody looking for extra money at the time. Right. So you were you were um, telling me a story earlier about a hike that you guys had made up to a uh, disused um, fire lookout. Uh, you want to go ahead and tell the guests about that? So are we are we talking like seven hundred nitro express or or how big is ammunition? Okay. So yeah, seven hundred nitro express. Wow. That's a that's I mean, that's the size of your thumb. Three oh eight. Interesting. So, so when when you raced down the hill after that, did did you see any tracks or did you smell anything uh, kind of off or weird? Right. <laughs> so, I mean, as being out in in nature, you know, because that's your job is to be out there. Um, either being a park ranger or, you know, being uh, wildland fire, you probably saw a lot of, you know, 
different things that people didn't usually get a chance to see. Um, and the funny, kind of one thing that I thought was interesting was, um, so my wife and I have lived here in Farmington for probably going on close to six years now. And I remember when she and I moved in the area, I was thinking of joining the Farmington Fire Department because they have a wildland crew. And uh, Doc C and I went down to one of the informational meetings, and I thought it was funny because they were like, you know, I told them what I was doing and, and what I was thinking about because they have a wildland crew I wanted to get on. And I said, oh, but my dad was a wildland firefighter for the Forest Service. And the, the captain looked at him and he goes, hmm, so any crazy stories? Um, and you told them about uh, a cabin you guys were tasked with saving, right? brings to mind um, urban interface. Uh, you hear that a lot. I, I follow a guy on YouTube, uh, Wrangler Star. He lives out in the Pacific Northwest. He was a, a USFS fire, uh, wildland firefighter. And he always talks about urban interface. Can you touch on that for a little bit? <clears throat> So urban interface is basically what he said is basically um, so forests didn't grow around us. Uh, we moved into a forest. So nine times nine times out of ten, what happens is someone will go out and they will build. Um, they'll maybe clear a spot inside the tree for a couple of buildings, uh, but usually their buildings are within maybe five, ten feet of a tree. Uh, and what he was talking about and what they teach now is you want to have a clear buffer around your buildings in your area where you're going to live so no, <clears throat> no fire can jump to or, you know, if a tree falls down, you want to have enough space to where a tree falls, it's not going to fall near your building. And I, uh, I, I think I, I sent you a picture, Adrian. Um, it was a picture of a, a forest uh, crowning out. And basically, I think, um, uh, no, it's a, it's a, yeah, that, that's getting there. Uh, basically, right. And what I say with crown out is when. Uh, the fire is going from top of the tree to top of the tree, and it's jumping. Yeah, and that's that's scary because that's that's where you're starting to lose control of it. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Oh, the fire shelters. Uh, only the Brave. I was like, actually going to ask you about that crew, but that was uh, called Only the Brave, and that was about the Granite Mountain Hotshots. And that was so we're just about fifteen minutes and, and that that's a good spot where we're at now. Um I wanted to ask you about um the granite I wanted to get your view on the granite mountain hotshots and and maybe um talk a little bit about fire weather and, and how that uh played a part in in what happened to them. Sure. Yeah, so the Granite Mountain Hotshots were in um, Yarnell, Colorado, I believe. Um, And they were distinctive because they were the only municipally owned uh, hotshot crew. Um, And basically what they would do is if a call went out, they they would get in their truck and they would drive out and they were a hand crew. Um, what happened, I don't remember if it was the Yarnell fire itself or if it was a, after the Yarnell fire, but they uh, were tasked to go up the side of a draw and protect the spot. And they looked at maps and they our train is going down the draw to the fourth range. Um, and I think it was uh, midday. Um, they asked their, uh, their new guy on the crew of Donut to do fireworks. So they dropped him off. Or actually, a guy in a theater came and picked him and took him up to the top of the draw so he could do fireworks. And he was within uh, radio communications with the rest of his crew. And the rest of his crew went down the line. What happened is um, the fire jumped. The fire jumped, and they couldn't get out on their main route. So they jumped down the draw to their escape. Um, but they unfortunately didn't make it to their escape route because the, the, the weather was moving faster than what they had planned, um, and they had to use – they had – they had to use their tractors. Unfortunately, uh, Donut was the only one. Uh, well, his name was McDonough, but they call him Donut. 
uh, Donut was the only one that survived out of his crew, um, and that was just that that that's the hard part of it because uh, he he regrets that today. He doesn't know why his boss picked him to be the weather guy, but um, I just wanted to get your your insight on that as a firefighter and as having seen the movie. Uh, what what were your thoughts on that incident? Well, and I think one of the things I heard that happened is um, if it had moving at the way it was moving, it would have moved over. They would have been able to get out of their shelters into the black. What I heard is as soon as it went and the weather actually sat on top of them. Um, so I, I don't, I really didn't, you know, follow up on it. So I don't know if they, I think out of respect of those guys, they, they dissolved Granite Mountain. Um, they didn't recruit it. Um, there's a, there's a picture of the crew and I should have totally got it on here, but there was a fire in Yarnell. They were based out of Yarnell and, uh, I think it's a yucca tree that's hundreds of years old that they were actually tasked to save, and they saved the tree. Um, so there's a big picture of them in a huge pyramid in front of the tree, and that was, I believe, the last time they were together on a fire successfully. An interesting um, backstory to it. Um, a lot of my listeners might know that I did um, World War II paratrooper reenacting for a while. Um, so I was kind of interesting, interested to find the history on this. Um, that was actually started uh, smoke jumping. Jumping with your firefighting gear into a fire was started with the paratroopers. Um, and the group that mainly did it was the triple nickel uh division and these gentlemen were hard charging ass kickers um they were and here's the thing they were all colored unit that time in the military uh, yeah you, you you could be on the front lines you could be a paratrooper but everybody understands at that time different things that were going on you know our country was still segregated um we did not let the uh, african-american paratroopers into combat internally they stayed home and they formed 
the U.S. Forest Service's first uh, detachment of smoke jumpers. And these guys are amazing. Jumping in with close to 95 pounds of gear. I mean, they're, they're wearing, um, they don't just jump in like, like combat. They've got protective gear on and helmets. And I think they know that self weighs about 85 pounds. Um, all their gear is dropped in uh, on a parachute. So once they land, they've got to find their equipment. And in that equipment is, is the same stuff that you use on tele on teleattack and uh, a ground crew. You know, your Pulaski's, your shovels, uh, and everything, and they do the same thing. But the nice thing about the um, the smoke jumpers is they can get in quick. Uh, but there have been a number of injuries with that too, because you're <laughs> you're jumping out of an airplane into fire. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a bad mixture, but, um, um, so what was your favorite memory of, of being a firefighter for the Forest Service? Well, I wanted to thank you. Um, we'll end it a bit short. we got about five minutes left, but we'll end it a bit short tonight. Um, we're actually going to have you on uh, again next week. Uh, like I was telling the folks when we started, it was, this is actually going to be a three-show series about the U.S. Forest Service. Um, so next week we're going to have you on again, um, and we're going to be talking about um, – not doing the, the firefighting, but you're also a park ranger. So we're going to talk about that aspect of it. So I wanted to thank you for coming on, Doc C, and uh, um, have a good week, and we'll, we'll see you on. Sammy, it's 1984, but I absolutely love every time I get to talk to him. So... It's like every time I talk to him, it's like hearing hearing the story for the first time. Still, so, um, a couple minutes left. I wanted to go ahead and update uh, our listeners and our viewers with what we have coming down the pipe um, for this series and maybe the next couple of shows. So next week is going to be. Uh, Episode two of this, um, and it's going to be about Dan's time as a park ranger uh, at the Custer Guard Station um, in Idaho, uh, and that was probably about a year to two years uh, worth of service taking care of a guard station and um, going to campgrounds and taking care of campgrounds and all that. Um, so that is Friday. Yeah, the Yankee Fork, yep. Oh, yeah. 
Right. Yep. So that's July 28th. Uh, and then coming up on uh, August 4th, Friday, August 4th, um, we're going to be talking about something that I'm a little bit of a treasure hunter, so I like to, you know, uh, I look at things and figure out things that I'd like to do. And this one is on D.B. Cooper. Um, it was a gentleman in the 70s that hijacked a plane in the Pacific Northwest, requested a certain amount of money and two parachutes, and he jumped out of this plane and was never seen again. They found some of his cash in the mid-'80s, but they have never found him. So that's what we're going to talk about for the next two weeks. I wanted to thank you for coming and listening and being uh, great patrons of our radio broadcast. And to that, we will see you next week as we go into the breach again for another 